Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning, this is the 3CR Spoken Word Programme. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm having a second interview with Robert DiNapoli about his new book, Reading Old English Wisdom, The Fetters in the Frost. Thank you for coming in, Bob. Thank you for having me. Um, So, Reading Old English Wisdom, as we discussed last month, is about um, the sort of pre-Christian literature in Old English, in the wisdom tradition. And um, somehow this was maintained or passed down through monasteries and monks transcribing materials in scriptoriums. Um, And you were saying that uh, hidden in the text are pre-Christian sensibilities, but they're concealed because, you know, these materials are actually preserved in Christian monasteries. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to say... Anything about that? Well, sure. The, um, the revolution of literacy was a huge thing. Uh, a, it led to the preservation of texts that are all we have uh, to begin to understand this culture in modern times anyhow. Um, but it also meant that how what got recorded was decided on was a very fraught question. I often have to remind my students, you know, if... Uh, ordinary paper cost $100 a sheet, we would have to think long and hard about what we photocopied. Uh, you know, we couldn't do it casually. And so only the, the most important stuff would get committed to the physical medium of writing. So that was one major impact of Christianity. So what we would expect from that would be that the productions of the monasteries in Anglo-Saxon England should be solely things that reflected church teaching, that promoted church teaching, that, you know, furthered the people's salvation, if you like. And what we find is just a much more mixed bag. Great. Okay. Now, we're going to uh, read about a text called The Fortunes of Men Mm -hmm. and the Hanged Man. Now, if anyone has sensitive ears, this is a a somewhat grisly description. Uh, So please uh, come back in five minutes. Uh, So anyway, carry on. Okay. Another must ride the broad-beamed gallows a sway in death until the treasury of his soul, his bloody coffer of bone, lies plundered. The raven takes from him the eyes of his head. The one in dark raiment slashes his soulless corpse. He can't fend off the airborne ravager with his hands because of his crime. His life has fled, and he, insensate, Beyond all hope of life, pale against the wood, sustains his fate, veiled in death's mist. A cursed name is his. And what do we learn from this text, which on one level just seems to be a description of an execution? Uh, Yes, that the Anglo-Saxons did practice capital punishment. Not with any great frequency, as it happens. Uh, The the most severe sanctions for capital crimes in Anglo-Saxon England in the law codes tend to be exile. 
getting thrown out to the wolves was a much more severe punishment than getting hanged uh, in, in certain quarters, at least. But my interest here is what gets the poet's imagination going? What is, what is driving the imagery and the tone of the language and this passage? And, yeah, I mean, it is the grisly details. We've talked about this before, but in a standard religious text that took up this scene in a homily, most commonly, the author would be immediately reflecting on death as a consequence of the fall of, you know, God pronouncing on Adam because he disobeyed in the Garden of Eden, you have to die. And all death subsequently is somehow a consequence of, of that original sin. And that's still the church's teaching to this day, in fact, in formal terms. Notice nobody's talking about this guy paying Adam's death, uh, debt at all. Um, and what's of interest, or at least what produces the energy of this passage, once again is the process. We've talked about process in other bits of, the, of, of, of other wisdom poems previously. The how you get from a living man to a piece of meat dangling from a rope. Uh, it's not pretty on the one hand, but it's part of the deal. And that more than anything else, there's almost a matter-of-fact tone here. You know, if you're going to hang someone and leave them to dangle for crows, this is what you get. And hanged men were commonly left in that way to serve as a deterrent symbol. But it's, it is that process, the physical helplessness of this hanged figure. But it, it emphasizes the pathos of human physicality, the fact that we inhabit fragile bodies that can be subject to this kind of outrage and bodies have been subjected to this kind of outrage down through the ages time and time and time and time again the poem's not interested in judging the justice or injustice of capital punishment but it wants you to know what it entails it wants you to see it as concretely as possible yes perhaps it's a kind of seventh century strange fruit oh very strange fruit, yes. yes. I, I, the, the thought has occurred to me many times. Okay, well, let's move on to mm-hmm. uh, the next one. Mm-hmm. And this is from a different text. Tell me about the next text. This is from one called Widsith, which is one of the stranger productions among a genre that's produced a lot of strange productions, but this one is out there. The title Widsith means literally the far-traveled one, and its speaker is basically a poet whose name is Widsith. And he tells his story in a, in a kind of curriculum vitae. It's his CV where he talks about all the places he's been, all the people he's seen. And when you top them all up, it adds up to about a 2,000-year-long CV where you know he's some kind of mythical every poet who's been everywhere and seen everything. Um, rooted in Germanic experience, he, he, if you draw his journeys on the map, they kind of cluster around the Germanic center of northern Europe, but, they, but he goes far and wide even so. So this is all about the scope of poetry, how it embraces all of human experience in a geographical sense as well as a psychological one. This is one of the few passages that are not pure catalog, because often it'll just be a long sequence of lines where you're saying, well, I was among this people, and I sung before this king, and then this people and this king, and this people and this king, and on and on and on. Uh, It's just a list. 
But then there are some small narrative portions like this one, which I thought was kind of interesting, that is useful for summing up the spirit of the poem. So I'll read that now. Turning this way and that through the created world, those who bring joy of song to their fellows roam the face of the earth. They speak out of necessity, declaring words of thanks. North or south, they always meet one sharp in telling tales, or unstinting with gifts, a man who wants to erect his lasting fame before the company, performing noble deeds until all has fled, life and light together. He toils for praise, wins everlasting glory beneath the skies. So that's a description of the wandering poet. More or less. It's a bit of a jumble, but that's the main characterization, yes. Toiling for praise, winning everlasting glory, going north and south. So what do we learn from from those lines? Well, it starts with those who bring joy of song to their fellows. That's your poets, unmistakably. And again, like with Sith, they go everywhere. That's how they collect the matter that they celebrate in, in their poems. They speak out of necessity, declaring words of thanks. Most commonly in cultures where this kind of bard plies his trade, he's often composing praise poems for lords who have shown him hospitality or generosity. And it's, a, you know, it's sort of one hand washing the other. Uh, the Lord takes you in and shows you hospitality and you praise him to the sky so that his reputation gets bigger. And what's funny is that these lines kind of conflate the two figures. All right, they decla- all right, the poets declare words of thanks. North or south, they always meet one sharp and telling tales or unstinting with gifts. Now, that's the, the good Lord who shows them appropriate hospitality and a man who wants to erect his lasting fame. I think it was last month we talked about Dome, you know, the Anglo-Saxon concept of fame. And again, that's a joint effort that is achieved by either the king or the warrior who achieves great deeds, but he needs a poet to put it in memorable form so that people will remember that those deeds are his in, in that way. So they, they, they work together here, and their identities kind of, kind of blur by the end of, of this passage. This man performing noble deeds until all's fled, life and light together. He toils for praise. Yeah, and the poet's almost disappeared here now, although he's doing the recording. And in fact, we're listening to words that the poet has actually composed in the poem that is called Widsith. Right, okay. Well, I mean, I guess also one of the interesting things is just remembering that this was a culture of an oral tradition of poetry. Originally, yes. Yes, so the role of the wandering bard who could uh, bring the tales of different places to each of the mead halls that he visited you know, he's a kind of uh, like the the news reporter in a way, in in an oral culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so it, it's an interesting poem remembering that figure. I yeah. mean, the bards who transmitted the Homeric era, epics before they were written down also sure. had a role like that. And in the Tibetan tradition, they used to uh, tell the stories of Geza, mm-hmm. a, a heroic, mythical, probably king 
Anyway, so yes, these are interesting roles to play. So let's move to Solomon and Saturn. Mm-hmm. What's, what's that about? Oh boy, um, this one I'm going to have to struggle to be brief, but I, I hope I'll manage. Um, it's a dialogue between two figures, one called Solomon, one called Saturn. All right, so far so easy. Um, Solomon is pretty much the biblical king who, for our purposes, is, is best known for wisdom. That one of the tales told in the book of Kings about Solomon is that God appeared to him in a dream and asked him, what do you want more than anything else? And he asked for wisdom, and God granted his wish. It didn't stop him acting stupidly at other points in his career, but that's another, that's another matter. Um, but he's a byword for wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon, all right, in that way. Saturn's the tricky figure here because it's a name given in different traditions and not always the same name. But it's basically a Chaldean sage who is given the name of Saturn, which happens to be also the Roman name of the god Saturn. So that confuses the picture a little bit. But he's clearly a sage, a wise man from Chaldea. If you want to think of an equivalent, think of the magi who come to the manger in the nativity story in Luke's gospel. And just remind Uh, me again, where's Chaldea? Near East. I don't have a clear geographical so sense. So perhaps it's Turkey or Iraq or yeah, somewhere. Could, could be the, yeah, Syria, some, somewhere in the eastern Mediterranean, liter- oh, okay. literal, if you like. Sure. I, I can't be more specific than that. But the Chaldeans had a very specific reputation. They were the stargazers. They were the astronomers of the, of the ancient world and were thought to have distilled great wisdom from their observation of the heavens and its regular passage across the skies. Now, these two get into uh, a dialogue that is partly debate and partly just discussion, where Saturn, well, look at it this way, they're both very pre-Christian, on the one hand, but Saturn is technically pagan. He's, He's not in touch with Jewish tradition, whereas Solomon is the great wise Jewish king. And in this poem, he's given some undeniably Christian wisdom to announce. And the the story frame is basically that Saturn comes looking for wisdom, and he knows where to go. He knows that Solomon has the reputation for being the wisest man on earth. So he comes there, okay, you know wisdom? Tell me wisdom. And they start a back-and-forth discussion, partly... It's almost a debate or a riddle poem where Saturn might pose a question that Solomon has to answer, and he always does so triumphantly, of course. Uh, Sometimes Solomon asks the question. So it's that varied mode of discourse that you get in wisdom texts where sometimes the participants are competing with each other or sometimes they're collaborating in their pursuit of an elusive wisdom. And this is just one exchange that I thought was r- revealing on several scores, and probably just read through it here. That's... Yep. All right. Okay, so Saturn said, but what unspeaking creature is it that rests in, cer- in a certain recess? Grown eminently wise, it has seven tongues. Each tongue has twenty tips. Each tip possesses the wisdom of an angel that wishes to elevate everyone on high. So you can see Jerusalem's gold walls sparkling and their splendor shine, an emblem of those who are rooted in truth. Say what I mean. Now this reads just like a riddle. You know, there is a creature I know of. And it's got a lot of tongues. (laughs) And each one of them speaks with the wisdom of an angel. What is it? Well, of course, Solomon knows. I'll move right on to his reply. Books 
accrue great glory, much they tell of certain joy for him who thinks at all. They fortify and ground well-founded thoughts, putting at ease the heart in every man in the face of this life's pressing host of woes. Saturn said, Bold the man who tastes the power of books, whoever wields them, will always be the wiser. Solomon said, Triumph they bestow on each just man, safe harborage to those who hold them dear. So this is a celebration of books, basically. And they speak in many voices. We get that same notion of polyvocality coming, coming through. And, of course, Saturn as a pre- Judaic sage, if you like, would not know the textual tradition, technically, uh, that Jewish tradition initiates, really, right. uh, for all sorts of historical reasons. But Solomon does and fills him in. So this creature clearly is books. Okay. Um, and it's amazing to think it's an unspeaking creature with seven tongues, mm-hmm. and each tongue has 20 tips, and each tip possesses the wisdom of an angel, and that's books. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Yeah, extraordinary. It tells you something about the value of text to cultures that came to depend on it. Right. And again, uh, look very, very briefly, Jewish culture needed to develop this this text-based culture because they were always being carted off into exile. Uh, They had a temple, but it got trashed. They couldn't count on staying in the same place from one to another. Can you say age of migrations? I mean, there's weird parallels here with the later Germanic situation. So they, they needed a portable form of cultural capital. And for them, that meant written text. It became their backup file, you know, so that if they, if they got hauled off into exile where they wouldn't remember who they were, they had it in writing. And that's why the cultures of Judaism, Christianity, and later Islam are so obsessive about text because it meant everything to the early Jewish culture that developed it. It was a survival, a safety net, a survival kit. Yes, well, I mean, one of the worst things that we've seen in the, we saw in the 20th century was the burning of books in in many places. So I'm talking to Bob DiNapoli about his new book, Reading Old English Wisdom, The Fetters in the Frost. And this book is a collection of different texts, isn't it? It's not Mm -hmm. just one one text. There's uh, quite a number of texts. Uh, what's the next text? Where will we go to? The next is a poem, uh, not hugely long, about 100 lines and a bit, called by modern editors, The Order of the World, which is a very evocative title, if nothing else. And it's, um, it's a poem that has fascinated me from the early days of my research. Um, as I think I said at the launch, I published my first article on this poem in 1998. It had come up in my dissertation research and I fell in love with it then and have never fallen out of love with it and I've given some excerpts here from a key climax in its rhetoric near the center of the poem that uh, I find particularly characteristic and worth looking at. Uh, So these are two passages. I'll read them continuously because the the one follows from the other and uh, they're all on more or less the same theme and it begins like this. So his glory emanates in all directions, the fittest judge of all, who made this life for us. And every morning this radiant light shoots forward above the misty cliffs, striding over the waves bedecked with wonders, flooding from the east at break of day, joyful and fair to the generations of men. 
and then a few lines later, it then departs, surrounded by its glory, into the western sky, that splendid star processing with its retinue until, by evening, it passes beyond the floor of the sea, and darkness above will call to darkness below. Night comes on, observing the fixed decree of the Holy Lord. The heaven-bright sun descends ablaze through the ordinance of God beneath the earth's embrace, a traveling star. So, please explain. Well, I don't know about explain, but I can certainly <laughs> react. First off, I mean, this is mythopoeic language at its farthest stretch in many ways. And basically, this poet is contemplating the heavens, first and foremost, on a literal level. But what he sees there is a pattern of majestic order and majesty that suggests royalty to him. And, you know, the authority of God, who is also a king, who can order this spectacle. And, and remember, you know, we're not in, like, polluted modern times when the, the night sky and the passage from towards sundown into full nightfall would be glorious uh, if, you, if you had the time to, you know, uh, get, get up and, and look at it and go, wow, you know, how, how beautiful. So there's a certain just pure aestheticism to this passage that has always engaged me from the get-go. But there's something more going on here. This sun, this luminous creature that we see parading across the sky, is clearly an analog for God. And that's a, that's a very common thing in English literature because of accident of the language. First off, what I call the sun-sun pun, which is everywhere, where the physical sun in the sky and the son of God you know, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, are always overlapped with each other in all kinds of wordplay. That, that's all too much fun on its own right. But this notion of solar deity is very, very ancient. And, you know, because the sun is the most dazzlingly splendid, regal object in the sky, for people everywhere, the solar tends to represent the divine on some level or another. Some cultures worship the sun which, of course, the church would reject as idolatry, you know, that that is taking one of God's creations and elevating it to the level of deity, which is a category error that you shouldn't commit. But this poem is coming close. You know, the poet loves the aesthetic spectacle of the sun so much that he turns it into a royal progression. It is like the process of a king with his retinue, with him, no doubt splendidly garbed courtiers, you know, which would be the stars and the planets and the moon, all of which cycle across the sky, again in this amazingly orderly fashion that astronomers have been looking at since Chaldean days, if you like. Now, the issue here is of poetic language, to my mind, anyhow, that you have the sun, which is and is not God. I mean, that's, that's a good Hindu notion, too. You know, that is thou, that Assyrian. is not thou. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Not this, not that, or? Yeah, or it's you and not you. Tatvam. Oh, I can't do the Sanskrit off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, but, but that is you and that is not you. There's a recognition that uh, any conception of God you, you have is going to be inadequate, that it may mean God to you, but it's not going to be 
God. This poet's working it the other way around in a kind of sunny, optimistic, well, why can't I think of the sun as God? It strikes me that way. I'm not being literal, all right? I'm not being a pagan idolater or anything, but gosh, that's gorgeous. And if you try to imagine God, you could do worse, all right? And that's, above all else, what I find so powerful here. It's almost like you're watching a metaphor get born. The sun becomes a metaphorical stand-in for God, and, um, and that's going to run and run and run and run in English poetic language. And then the second part that I read straight through into about its departing and the sunset and the deep mystery at the same time that the sun in its progress, okay, you know, we watch it go across the sky, but then it descends. It goes behind the earth, it goes under the earth, and we don't, nobody knows where that is. Uh, how it gets from the west sinking below, that somehow it gets trundled across the underworld to rise in the east. And that is a magnificent process. You know, we love, we love sunrises and sunsets. But what matters is that spray of light over the horizon, those shafts of luminous glory that... Uh, you know, make you feel good. <laughs> yeah, and and that's a kind of a more pagan or pre-Christian sensibility than one that you get in in Christian literature. It allows for that, is the thing. So it imports a slight, slightly, let's call it traditional, coloration of those meteorological phenomena that we can respond in the way that our ancestors might have responded before you know the truths of the church had arrived in this land. And that's not a problem somehow. Well, it's, it's the sense of the wonder of nature rather than the domination of nature, yeah, perhaps. Of course, the, ch- the church had a, a complicated relationship with the natural world. That's partly with us yes. in the environmental issues that we deal with today. That's right. Uh, that's right. Whereas this one is more uh, celebratory and in awe. Definitely. Yeah. Dare I say holistic? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and the idea that we don't know where the sun goes, I mean, that's a wonderful idea, and it's one I've never had before. Mm. So you know, there's, there's many, many insights that can be gleaned from these unusual works. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in a sense, uh, if, I, if I put on my cheerleader hat for old English poetry, one thing it does is give you an object lesson in what poets can show us, that they approach events, characters, qualities from different angles. And if you yield to the poet's voice, you will be taken somewhere different. Yes. Where they appear different and you gain a wholly altered view on what's going on that enlarges your world, uh, for better or worse. And... It also takes us back to another lost world, you know, like an archaeological dig in a way, which we would never have imagined otherwise. Some would argue uh, that it actually enacts or, or brings into play modes of consciousness that we no longer possess, possibly archaic, pre-isolated ego self in a single skull kind of perspectives on the world uh, where we bled into our environment a bit more or humans did who knows how long ago and that we now in our modern self-bound selves uh, miss a little bit 
and this offers a a view back, you know, into those more connected up times. Wonderful. Well, it's uh, it's a marvelous book and an extraordinary achievement. Um, I've been talking to Robert DiNapoli about his new book, Reading Old English Wisdom, The Fetters in the Frost, which is a translation of Old English poetry with a really extensive commentary. Um, Thank you so much for coming in, Bob. My pleasure. Okay, my name is Di Cousins, and this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Program. And we'll just go out with a little bit of Celtic harp music from Kath Connolly's CD, Journey, Celtic Harp Reflections. <laughs> 